If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go to the book of Job. To the book of Job. If you've ever heard a message in this particular book, or maybe you've heard other people speak about this, there's usually some joke that comes from the pastor that, you know, if people get confused, Job with Job, and then there's some sort of thing that makes you giggle or whatever. I don't have that. I don't have some joke for you. But I do want to have us go to the book of Job. It's an Old Testament book, and it's uh, right before the book of Psalms. And the message today is entitled, Purpose in Pain. And I'm going to tell you right now, this message is absolutely loaded with all kinds of content. And I'm going to do my best to work through that in an efficient manner, but most importantly, in a clear manner, that all of us would walk away from today's message feeling equipped to face the things that come our way in life. You know, we love the stories of people going from rags to riches, don't we? Those are the feel-good stories. I know there's a few of you out there, I've heard you talk about how you like the Hallmark Channel. Sometimes that's a part of those Hallmark movies, right? They, they maybe are down and out on all their luck, and then they meet some knight in shining armor, and then now they're, you know, living the blessed life. Well, it's interesting here with Job... His life story is actually flipped. He goes from riches to rags. And he does go back to riches. And so in the midst of that, it's important to understand some of the things that Job is kind of processing when he's losing all the things that are going on around him. You know, it's, with this book, it's most commonly believed that the book of Job was written during the patriarchal period, and if you're like, what in the world is that? It would be the time frame of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this may be the oldest book in the Bible next to the book of Genesis. So this goes way back in history, but it's after Adam and Eve, and it's also after the flood. In fact, those two events are mentioned in the book of Job. Okay? And it's believed that Job lived to be over 200 years old. So I know a comment was made over here. He went back to riches, but that took a long time before he saw that. And so we know he's wrestling with these circumstances of losing all of these things. And today we're covering just the beginning of Job's story. And this would be a very depressing story if you did not have the whole context um, and so to have the whole picture, no, we're walking through the book of Job for the entire month of June, okay? But I won't leave you all depressed today. There is hope in today's message. You know, what's interesting is Job may not have actually been this guy's name. I thought that was interesting. The word Job means to be hated or persecuted, and he could have received this nickname from his friends that came to kind of talk with him through some of the things that were going on. And so it's possible that that was just a nickname given to him, but we do call him Job, and we look at the book of Job. And Job is a book that is filled with questions. Just before the service started, there were some young ones sitting up by where I was, and I had said something to one of them, and then the question was, why? And then you give the answer, why? And you're like, because, why? 
You know, how many of you can ever relate to that as parents? Why? Or grandparents? Why? Okay, guess what? Adults do the same thing, don't we? We go through things, and there's times where we need to know why. God, why is this? God, why is that? God, why is this? And this book is filled with questions. In fact, in the book of Job, there are 330 questions that get presented in this book. And just to give you some, I mean, comparison, in the book of Genesis, that's a big book, 50 chapters long. It's longer than Job as far as chapters are concerned. There's 160 questions. So 330 in the book of Job. In the book of Matthew, another big book, 28 chapters in the New Testament, there's 150 questions. And in the book of Psalms, huge book, right? 160 questions. So in the midst of that, Job is filled with questions. And here's kind of the primary theme or the primary question for all of us to chew on here today that comes from the book of Job, and it's this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Isn't that a good question? And I realize there can be a variety of ways to go about that. And Job's friends, they try to come in and try to help him maybe understand a few things. And we can have all our ideas, all our philosophies about that, what's going wrong in our life that that happened or the decisions we've made. And in the midst of that, sometimes there's just things that we can't explain. So we go, why? And God's like, because. And we're like, but why? That's in us to know those answers. I mean, and here's the thing. Job is a really good guy. We're going to get to know him here in a second. If Job was a really bad guy, we'd have no problem with this. We'd be like, you had it coming. Like, it's good that you, you know, lost everything. Your family is dying. You know, you're covered with boils and you're, you're just, your skin is like it's on fire. It's okay because he was a bad guy. But Job's a good guy. And so then the question becomes, why does this man have to experience so much pain? And I appreciate this quote from C.S. Lewis. He was asked the question, why do the righteous suffer? And C.S. Lewis's response was, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. And it's like, oh... Okay, so with this in view, before we begin to unpack Job and his story, let's pray. Okay? Bow your heads with me. Father, I thank you for this time here in your word. Lord, there's a lot that you've placed upon my spirit to share today, and so I'm asking for the grace to communicate these things clearly. As we spend time in your word, I pray that you would guide us, that you would lead us, and that, Lord, you would speak to us. And, Lord, right now we also ask for a blessing upon our children's ministry as they are learning about you, learning about your word. Please bless those that are leading, and may your spirit be at work in their lives as well. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before we start unpacking Job chapter 1 and reading through that, I want to lay a little groundwork, okay? And this is important. This is incredibly important. So the groundwork is to understand a little bit about this enemy that we have that goes by the name of Satan. And to also understand this thing called the curse. 
the baseline for the answer of why do good people suffer or why do bad things happen to good people, you've got to start with an understanding of this right here. Okay? So Satan had an angelic name, Lucifer. And I want to walk you through some things. Did you know that Lucifer was created by God? In fact, in Colossians 1.16, listen to this. Through Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. And he made the things that we can see and the things that we can't see. And then it lists the things that we can't see. It says, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. God created Lucifer. And then it says, everything was created through Christ and for Christ. So Lucifer was created to glorify God. And it's believed that there's a picture here of Lucifer being described in Ezekiel 28. And I'm going to read some of these things from verses 12 through 15. Addressing Satan or Lucifer, it says, You were the model of perfection. You were in Eden, the garden of God. He says, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and you walked among the stones of fire. Then verse 15, you were blameless in all that you did from the day you were created. But then verse 15 shifts to the next point that we need to understand. It says, until the day that evil was found in you. And it goes on to explain that evil. So there's a fall that takes place from heaven. Lucifer falls from heaven along with other angels that fall with him. And I want to walk us through that. So picking up again from verse 15 in Ezekiel 28, saying you were blameless until the day that evil was found in you. Verse 16, I banished you in disgrace from the mountain of God. I expelled you, O mighty guardian, from the place among the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. You want to know where pride really came from? There you go. Verse 19, all who knew you were appalled at your fate, and you have come to a terrible end, and you will exist no more. Another Old Testament passage that considers the fall of Satan is Isaiah 14. Verse 12, it says, how you have fallen from heaven... Morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. Verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Whoa. He's elevating himself above God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. Verse 14, I will ascend above the tops of the cloud, I will make myself like the most high. Then it says, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Even Jesus talks about this moment where there was a falling out in heaven. This was recorded from Jesus. These disciples came and they were so joyful. And they're like, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. And then he told them, like, Jesus wasn't like, oh, are you serious? Demons believe you with my name. They they. Okay, they obey you. And, and he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So even Jesus 
talks about this moment in history where Lucifer is thrown from heaven. But here's where we see other angels join in on this fall. In Revelation 12, verse 4, talking about the great dragon, Satan, it says his tail swept away one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth, referencing angels there. But even in Jude 1, verse 6, it says it very clearly. The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. It says, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So we understand there's a foundation here. We have an enemy of our life. In fact, the Bible calls Satan, right, our great enemy. We also know him as the devil. The word Satan means adversary or enemy. The word devil means accuser. So he is our great enemy. The Bible calls him the father of lies, calls him this great dragon or the serpent, calls him the deceiver of the whole world, calls him a thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The Bible calls him the god of this world. He's the prince of this world. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, so this unseen spiritual realm, and it also calls him the tempter. So we have an enemy that wants to rip us to pieces, okay? So let's break down this Satan and the curse thing a little bit more. So at some point in the process of Satan falling from heaven and all these other angels falling from heaven, hell is created. Somewhere in there, I can't give you like at uh, 530, 6,000 years, I mean, I can't give you that. But at some point, hell was created, and this is from Jesus' mouth when he talks about those who are being cursed that future day when he is giving judgment. He says, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay? That means there's others that are joining in. It's people who are still living with the curse of sin. They've not brought Jesus into the equation to bring the release from the curse. When did the curse start? It started back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And you see that where Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit as they were tempted by the serpent. And the curse enters the equation. Romans 8 talks about the curse. Romans 8 verse 20 says that creation is subjected to frustration. And it's groaning. And we are groaning, and we cannot wait until God makes all things new. And so this kind of sets the tone. Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? It's because there's a curse, and we have a very real enemy to understand that the reasons why we experience that. The whole reason why there's death is because of the curse. Okay, so let's establish that before we get into Job. Okay? Job chapter 1. We're going to read through this starting in verse 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. You guys been to Uz? Come on. You guys are like, that's a lot to take in, I know. But the land of Uz, yeah. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 
5,000 or 500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. And Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would then purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. Now here comes a test. Verse 6. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan, and Satan answered the Lord. I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity, and he fears God, and he stays away from evil. And Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich the guy is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Verse 12, all right, you may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Here's the message. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then while he was speaking, another messenger arrived and says, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he's speaking, in comes another messenger. He says, Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking... Another messenger arrived with this news and said, Your sons and your daughters, they were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Then verse 20 says, Job stood up. He tore his robe in grief, and then he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. So this is a kind of a customs thing from back in that day. He's showing this sign of grief. He falls to the ground, and it says to worship. And in verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Time for test two. Chapter two, verse one. One day the members of the heavenly court came again to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. 
Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? This looks familiar. He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity, fears God, stays away from evil. And let's add a new wrinkle. He's maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him without cause. Verse 4, well, Satan replies to the Lord, skin for skin. A man will give up everything he has to save his life, but reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence, and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. And Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. And then enter three friends. Verse 11, they heard of the tragedy that he had suffered. They got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. All right, we've covered a lot of ground. Like I said, there's a bunch of stuff here today, and I'll do my best to keep things moving. Let's just take a moment. I think we understand we know who Job is, but let's just meet him again. Three things to know. This is a true man of God. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1. You also see that this man had lots of family. He had lots of wealth. Wealth at that time was measured in your livestock. This man had a lot of livestock. He was very, very wealthy. And then I'll just point out in verse 8, this man was one of a kind. And I get that because God's own words, he is the finest man in all the earth. I feel like that's one of a kind, right? God thinks a lot about this man, Job. The next thing to point out is there's this like heavenly courtroom scene that takes place twice. You see it in chapter one, you see it in chapter two, okay? You have this heavenly angels and here comes Satan, the accuser with them and you see that specifically in verse six of chapter one, you see it in verse one of chapter two. You know, there's something that's going on here behind the scenes that Job has no idea that's going on. Job doesn't see this. He doesn't know what's happening. But there's a conversation going on in the spiritual realm. And the spiritual realm is very active, and it's still active to this day, even though this was thousands of years ago. What's interesting about Satan and his demons, they are people watchers. You gather that. Satan's like, I came. I was roaming. I was looking around, right? He's, he's a people watcher. 
And he can't be everywhere at once like God can. Okay, so he needs his demonic army roaming with him. And they roam, and they study people, and they look for your weak points and your vulnerabilities and the best way to attack you. This is what the demonic army does. They're looking for ways to ruin us, ways for us to be all twisted up and maybe even hinder our faith. This is their M.O. In verse 8 of chapter 1, when the Lord asked Satan, he says, Have you noticed, Job? That word noticed is actually a military term. God is saying, Have you studied this man for attack? Because that's what they do. And Satan replies to the Lord, he goes, Yes, I have. He had been studying Job. Because he was looking for ways to come at him. And he began to reason, well, but Job has a good reason to fear you. Because all you've done is bless the guy. You know, there's other places in the Bible where this kind of heavenly courtroom is taking place. And I want to touch on that. In 1 Kings 22, there's a moment where King Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah, comes and meets with the king of Israel named King Ahab. And they're kind of going back and forth. Should we team up together to go to war? And so as they're having that conversation, King Ahab brings in like 400 prophets who are false prophets, but he brings them in and he's like, hey, tell me, should we go to this battle? And he likes these people that tell him what he wants to hear. And so what they say is, hey, go ahead into this battle. You'll be victorious. And King Jehoshaphat from Judah's like, something's off here, Okay. And he's like, can we have somebody that's actually a prophet from the Lord come and, you know, guide us here a little bit? And King Ahab's like, well, there's this guy named Micaiah, but the thing is, he only says bad things about me. So I really don't want to bring him in right now. But they're like, okay, bring him in. Well, he comes in. The exchange does not go well. And in a sarcastic tone, Micaiah's like, yes, go to battle, you'll be victorious. And the king's like... Come on, man. What's really going to happen? He's like, you're going to die. He's like, see, I told you, this guy doesn't do anything good for me. Well, so it's recorded in 1 Kings 22, specifically 19 through 23. Micaiah is speaking to King Ahab, and he tells him, hey, there was a little heavenly courtroom about you, and I'm going to tell you about it. He says, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? And it says, one suggested this, another suggested that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. He says, by what means, the Lord asked. He says, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. Remember those false prophets? This is something that in that heavenly courtroom, God said, all right, this is what we're going to do. Go and do it. Verse 23, so now the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has decreed this disaster upon you. Heavenly courtroom moment. 
I think there's also a heavenly courtroom moment that's recorded in the New Testament. There's a point where Jesus addresses Simon Peter, and he says this in Luke 22, verse 31. He says, Satan has asked to sift all of you, and he was addressing Peter and the other disciples with him. Satan wants to sift you like wheat. Satan had asked God to sift the disciples. And he says, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned your back, strengthen your brothers. This sift of wheat is actually a metaphor that can mean a couple things. Shake someone apart or break a person down. And that's what Satan is wanting to do. And I want you to hold on to that right there because we're coming back to that at the very end. But Satan wants to sift like wheat, wants to break us down. That's what he's trying to do here with Job. Now we see it come through in the trials of Job. Okay, I'm going to move through these quickly. Messenger one comes in. Livestock and people watching your livestock are dead. Okay, next one, fire from God comes down, kills the sheep and the shepherds. Next one comes in, more livestock, more hired hands, dead. Messenger comes in, your whole family, dead, by a powerful wind that swept through the home. Then round two comes in, and now Satan strikes Job with all of these boils from head to toe, and that's pretty much what round two is. He had asked God, can I inflict him? And God said, I give you permission. But I'm going to add one more thing to the trials of Job. And that it's the closest person that he would have in his life. His wife turns to him and says, are you maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. I think that's also a test in the midst of the things that he is going through. You know, pain quickly uncovers what's going on deep down inside in each and every one of us. And I'm not going to fault Job's wife. I'm not going to sit up here and be like, I can't believe she did that. Okay, because I don't know what it's like to lose everything. So in no way am I going to put judgment on her. But it's clear that the pain had gotten the best of her. And she shot those words off at Job And pain can move us in one of two directions. Pain can move us toward God or it can move us away from God. And one of Satan's goals here is he wants us to be angry at God. And that's a common thing. Circumstances of life happen and God allowed this and now I'm mad at God. Satan won right there. That's Satan's goal. If I can create a wedge between you and your creator, I have won. So one thing that I think can be debated, and I'm not going to dive way into this because there's points of this where I'm a little bit, there's a mystery component to this. But there are things that are happening to Job that are directly from Satan and they're directly from God. I'm going to tell you right now as a pastor, there's pieces of this where I'm just like, I don't know how to reconcile that. But when you say fire from God fell from heaven, who was that from? That was from God. I'm like, I don't know how to reconcile that. God is a good God, but yet fire came down from heaven and killed the sheep and the shepherds. 
That's hard to wrestle with. And in the midst of that, too, it also talked about how a powerful wind swept through the house and made it fall. And I also see that it says that God had put a wall of protection around Job. Job um, had this protection, and Satan was saying, yeah, he loves you because you've put that wall of protection. Take that away. So we know God lifted his hand of protection. So God is very much a part of the reasons why Job has these trials and these struggles. And there's a purpose in all of that. The Bible would call these tests. Tests. And the New Testament talks about this. James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And First Peter 1 goes on to say, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer great grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is greater than gold, which perishes even, through, even though refined by fire, it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. So we go through things, and there's times where we may not be able to explain these things as to why this is happening, but in the midst of that, you might be actually walking through a test. And these tests are opportunities for you to grow spiritually. I think of the parable of the four soils, the path, the thorns, the rocks, the good path. If you know that story, when the seed gets scattered on the rocky ground, it says it springs up with joy, but when the sun comes and scorches that, it fades because the roots weren't deep. And then Jesus explains, it's like those people who take the word of God in, but then when trouble comes, when the heat of that sun is scorching, Where's your faith? And I think of that common saying, and I, I know that this gets used in, in with, I think, good meaning in our heart, but it's the wrong meaning when you look at the scriptures. Okay, we say, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. And I go, what verse is that? Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God will not allow more temptation than you can withstand. But there's going to be circumstances that come our way that will be more than you can handle. If you could handle all those circumstances, then guess what? You wouldn't need God. You could do it on your own. But that's not what I'm preaching. You need God. And God will never give you more than he can handle. And so you lean on him in the midst of this, and that's what Job did. His first response when all of this stuff was coming his way was worship. Man, when I'm having a bad day, that's the first thing I think of, right? I know that's what you all think of when you're having a bad day, right? In our flesh, we get angry, we get mad, and we're going, Lord, what is the deal? Job's response, maybe I should consider the God who's in control of my life, and he is still very much worthy of my praise. 
verse of the week. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll depart. The Lord gave, the Lord's taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And here's what's really neat about this that I think is helpful for all of us as we go through the heaviness of life. Grief and worship can coexist. Nobody's telling you you can't grieve. And I'm not telling you, move on. It's time to forget about these things that are really heavy, and there's serious things with that. Grief and worship can coexist. And you can praise God right in the middle of the storm. So he responds with worship. He also responds maintaining that purity of heart, that innocence, that integrity. Verse 22, and all of this, Job did not sin. And then again, chapter 2, verse 10, and all of this, Job said nothing wrong. The last point here, acceptance. This is also from verse 10. When his wife told him, you know, basically curse God and die, his response was, should we accept only good things from God? And that word accept, I see that as the definition, the consent to receive. And I know as a year or two ago, when Mark Larson preached about living life palms up, and that whatever comes our way, we're just like, all right, Lord, you're going to have to help us navigate this. We receive from the Lord the good things, and we also receive from the Lord circumstances that may not feel very good. But we do believe that there is something that God is doing that maybe we don't get to see or we don't fully understand. Remember, there's a spiritual realm that Job cannot see. So we trust that God is up to something. And I want to highlight these friends, these three friends that come into the equation. They get a really bad rap. And as you keep reading Job, they're like, hey, I know why you're suffering. Blah, 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 blah. You're a really bad person. That's why. I mean, what great friends, right? I mean, they all have their theories and their opinions as to why Job is suffering, and we give them a bad rap. But I want to start this series by saying, I am thankful for these friends and how they started their ministry with Job. They showed up, and they didn't say a word for seven days. They were just there to grieve with the man. And I see that and I think there's a ministry of presence that each and every one of us can have in each other's lives. That when we show up for each other, I mean, we're thinking, oh, I wish I had the right words. You know what? Sometimes it's just like, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to love on my friend because they are going through a difficult time. I think of the four friends that carried the paralyzed man up through the roof, dug a hole, sent, sent him down to Jesus. The faith of those friends, they went out of their way to help. The way we can go out of our way for those who are grieving is to actually go to them. That might be an inconvenience with our schedule, but we, we do it. And Galatians 6, 2 says to carry each other's burdens. So let's go back to the sifting of wheat, shaking someone apart or, or breaking a person down. And I think of this word, what the enemy meant for evil, God can use for good. 
Okay, so Satan wants to sift us like wheat. He wants to break us down. But God can use all of that to do something even bigger. Did you know that an oyster, you're like, okay, what are you about to talk about? An oyster that has not been wounded cannot produce a pearl. Isn't that interesting? A pearl is a healed wound. Pearls are a product of pain, the result of a foreign or unwanted substance entering into the oyster, such as a parasite or a grain of sand. And the inside of an oyster shell is a shiny substance called a nacre. And when the grain of sand enters in, the nacre cells go to work and they cover the grain of sand with layers and layers to protect the defenseless body And in the midst of that, as a result, there's a beautiful pearl that gets formed from that wound. The more pearls, the more valuable. God never allows pain without purpose. What if our greatest ministry to others comes out of our greatest pain? Think of that. What kinds of pearls is is God forming in your life? Keep with us through this series. Like I said, at the end, there is a huge blessing that gets heaped on to Job as he continues to seek the Lord. And I will say, I know his response was worship, but then after that seven days of silence with his friends, Job's the first to speak, and this is what he says, I wish I wasn't born That's how real the pain was, and I find that refreshing because I think we can have that mindset when we're going through the fire. It's okay to be real, but do it recognizing that God is right there with you and wants to help you navigate those questions. The MacArthur Study Bible says this, in the end, the lesson learned was that the one may never know the specific reason for his suffering. But one must trust in a sovereign God. That is the real answer to suffering. He goes on to say that the majority of this book is this mystery of how innocent people suffer. And God ordaining that his children walk through things like sorrow and pain and sometimes because of their sinful decisions or sometimes for chastening, sometimes for strengthening and sometimes it gives the opportunity for them to experience his comfort and his grace. But there are times when the compelling issue in the suffering of saints is unknowable because there's a heavenly purpose that those on earth cannot discern. And when that's happening, there's a certain point where you just have to say, palms up, Lord, I trust what you're doing here. Sometimes God will calm the storm around you. Other times he'll calm you in the midst of the storm. There's a peace that is available in the midst of life. And that peace comes through Jesus Christ. And I've been in this church long enough to know that I've walked with a number of families through storms 
And I remember hearing this question from a family one time. It's just like, I can't imagine walking through this without Jesus, without that peace, to know that there is a purpose in the pain. It makes all the difference. Jesus is that peace. And my question for all of us today, do you know that peace? I want to invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for the ministry of your word and to understand, Lord, that anything and everything we go through, that there is always a purpose and we can surrender our circumstances to you and say, God, I trust you. We may not always have the right answers. We may not always get answers from you that would help us to feel better, and we wrestle with that. But as we wrestle, Lord, we ask for the grace to trust you in the midst of the pain that we walk through. Father, it's possible there might be somebody listening right now that they are going through some heavy things. And I pray that the peace of Christ would be so real and so tangible for these people that you would steady them in the midst of life's storms. And I also pray, asking, Lord, that you would steady the storm. But if it continues, we pray that you would be real to each of these individuals as they navigate these storms. If there's someone listening right now that does not know the peace of Jesus, but there's something today that is resonating right now, and you say, I want that peace that comes from Christ. The Bible says Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And the first way in which he brings peace into our life is he brings peace to the issue of sin. Everyone is a sinner in need of a Savior. And we have to settle that. We have to come to God and ask for him to forgive us. And if there's someone that would desire to come and have that peace with God by receiving Jesus Christ, I encourage you to pray with me right now in your heart. Just say, Jesus, today... I want to receive you. I'm asking for forgiveness of my sin, that you would cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that you would guide and lead my life, that not only would I have peace with you, but you would also bring peace into my heart. Walk with me, talk with me, guide me and lead me. And I thank you for this gift of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.